broken. Living in a world where the people oppose you unjustly, people abuse you and speak ill of you and treat you poorly without cause. And the pain that that brings and the hope that can be had in trusting in the Lord when that takes place. Father, we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, short psalm, and one that that deals with a topic that is probably um, accessible to all of us. Title of the sermon this morning is Jesus, Our Help When Others Hurt Us. So we're, we're going to take a quick pop quiz. We don't do it all the time, but I'm going to take a quick pop quiz this morning. Raise your hand if another human being has ever caused you pain. Okay. As I suspect. So guess what? This morning, this sermon is incredibly relevant for all of us. Because all of us at some point in our lives have received pain at the hand of another human being. Now, some of that pain may have been justified. We, we may have been horrible people who then somebody responded to us as someone should respond to a horrible person and not seeing how horrible of a person we were being until way after the fact, we kind of had an, an, an oh, wow moment about ourselves. We were like, I was... A train wreck. Like, well, I can't believe that I acted that way. I get it why nobody wanted to be my friend. That sometimes the pain that others bring to us is justified. But for most of us, we've had experiences in our lives where people have hurt us and they didn't know that they were hurting us. Or people have hurt us and they've knowingly hurt us for no reason at all. Because... We're fallen and we're broken and we're sinful and our world has fallen and it's broken and it's sinful. And humans have a great tendency to cause each other pain. And so David, being very aware of how hurtful other people can be, wrote this very short psalm in which he expresses his great level of discomfort and his frustration and his anxiety about how other people's uh, actions have caused him distress and pain. And so in the first three verses, there's a cry for deliverance and a cry for help. Deliver me and help me is the cry of David's heart. You find that particularly in verse one. Oh God, hasten to deliver me. Oh Lord, hasten to my help. Now, what is it that David is wanting to be delivered from? What is it that he feels like he needs help with? So from what? What is it that the that David is distressed about. Well, we see this expressed in verses 2 and 3. What we glean is, is that there are those who take joy in David's pain. I know that this sounds strange, but there are people in this world that are so broken and so flawed and so enamored with their sin that they actually gain delight in making other people suffer. Now, it's not hard for us to imagine that on a grand global scale. When we talk about tyrannical government, now some of you just went to our government, shame on you. Yes, there's a lot of things you could say about how not great certain things in American government are, but... 
tyranny is probably not the right word for our governing system. Um, I'm thinking more of certain countries in Southeast Asia. People who are imprisoned without any sort of version of a due process. Public killing in squares because people don't follow the national religion. When we think about a global scale of tyranny and the joy that it seems to bring the lives of oppressors, we go, yeah, I get that, I can see that. But then when we strip it down to an individual reality, like people that you might actually know, who might glean some version of joy and delight from causing you or someone else to have harm and to have pain, that becomes incredibly confusing. It's like, why would anybody be like that? Like, why would someone act that way? And of course, in David's life, there were several people that found joy in attempting to bring harm to David's life. Like, it wasn't just an, a means to an end. They delighted in hurting David. Philistines did. King Saul did. We can run through a whole list of people that found joy in bringing pain to David. Now, notice what he talks about here. He says, they seek my life. That was literal. That wasn't some sort of metaphorical, spiritual, allegorical reality. There were people literally trying to kill David. They delight in my hurt at the end of verse 2. That phrase is a really cool phrase. Those who delight in my hurt. The language there is a language of, of substance. It's a, it's a language of, of almost size, if you will. They delight when they make me seem small. Now, who was David? At this time, when he's writing these psalms, who was David? He was the king of Israel. He had the preeminent position of power in the nation. That's who he was. Yet he wasn't on the throne. He wasn't the one in charge. He didn't have the full force of the national army behind him. He didn't have the full force of of those who were allies with Israel behind him. Because he was not actively living his life out as king. Saul was king. And then even after a season of being king, there was some internal family struggle that created upheaval even in David's kingship. David's kingship is marked by a lot of pain, a lot of suffering, a lot of trial, a lot of sorrow. And so when he says that there are those who delight in making me feel small, making me less than what I actually am, that's the language that he's using. I'm the king of Israel, and there are those who delight in the fact that I am not being able to behave as the king of Israel. Like, they're glad that I am less than what I truly should be. And friends, I just want to let you know that there are people in this world who delight in nothing more than you being less than what you really are. It will bring great joy to their hearts for you to be made small, for you to seem insignificant, for you to lack the value that God has given you as one who bears his image. And then this expression of joy about, about how they respond, those who say, aha, 
Aha. It's a really difficult, weird word to translate. In some places where it's used in, in Hebrew literature, it's used, this is, this is just, I, maybe I'm the only one that's going to think this is funny. It's used for the sound that horses make. Okay. <laughs> I've never met a horse that said, aha. Um, I remember watching that show, uh, was it Mr. Ed, whatever. Yeah, right. I, yeah, he used to make some really funny things because he could talk, a talking horse, you know. And, uh, you know, late at night on black and white TV, that was just a weird deal. So anyway, um, but that's going to turn into a different kind of sermon. So, uh, but it's the sound that horses make. It's also in Hebrew literature most usually used as an expression of joy. Like, a, like an exclamation of happiness. Now, what's funny about it is that when you walk through particularly the biblical text, this aha notion is an expression of joy, expression of delight, an expression of happiness. But it can be an expression of happiness for one of two reasons. Either for good that you have received. Something really great has happened to you, so a person would say this. Or for a bad thing that has fallen on those that you stand against. Now, this is where I go from preaching to meddling. If, if, when bad things happen in the lives of people that maybe you're not the best chums with, and the response of your heart is, <laughs> by the way, a more sinister way to do the aha, right there. Just, it was the same it was the same letters. Just, <laughs> oh, did you, did you hear what happened to so-and-so? <laughs> if that's the response of your heart, you may be the one who's giving the hurt instead of the one who's receiving the hurt. Because everybody, I guarantee you, Everybody in the room, we talked about, hey, those people who cause you pain and they're delighted to cause you pain. We all put ourselves on the sides of the recipient of the pain. Not on the side of the one who might be the one causing the pain in someone else's life. And so I'm glad that this text is included. I'm glad that this verse is here because when I was studying through it, I had to step back from the text and pause and think long enough. Are there people in this world that when I hear things have not gone well for them, the immediate knee-jerk reaction of my emotional self is, ah. if that's the case, I have a problem. And I'm part of the problem. Okay, back to preaching and not meddling anymore. What does David long to have happen in the lives of these people, those who are seeking his life, those who delight in his hurt and make him small, those who have expressions of joy when he goes through difficulty and sorrowful times. What is it that he desires to have happen for those who stand against him? Here in these same verses, 2 through 3, we see what he longs for in their lives. First, he wants them to be ashamed. Friends, let me tell you this morning, it is a shameful thing. To delight in the pain and sorrow and difficulty of another human being. It's a shameful thing. I just, I mean, there's no other way for me to, to go around that. Like, I shouldn't even have to break down the philo philosophical, logical connecting points that make that a true statement. It is shameful 
particularly for those in New Covenant Christianity, under the headship of Jesus Christ, with all of the New Testament teachings about heaping coals of kindness on our enemies and loving those and doing good to those who hate us and all of the host of them leaving vengeance for the Lord and not taking vengeance into our own hands. There, I mean, there's so many overwhelming passages in the Scripture, particularly for those in New Covenant realities under the headship of Jesus Christ, for us to not joy in the pain and suffering and sorrow of other people. But what does David want for them? He wants them to be ashamed. Why? Because it is a shameful thing to delight in the pain of others. David just wants a natural, real consequence to fall on them. I want them to be ashamed of this. I want them, when they consider themselves, to not be proud, to not feel like they've accomplished something. To not feel as if they've succeeded in some way. I want them when they evaluate their lives and they look at themselves to look at themselves and think, wow, this is reprehensible the way that I'm being. Why am I this way? He desires for them to feel shame. He also, if you continue in verse 2, longs for them to be humiliated. They're making others less than. He longs for the less than to fall on them. And then he makes a statement that he longs for them in verse 2 and 3, that they would be tur- that they would turn back and that they would be dishonored. This language for turn back is a very interesting use of this word. This language for turn back, it can mean to revoke something. But in some cases in the Old Testament, it, not always, but in some cases, it's the word that's sometimes used for repenting, for turning away from sin. But in this case, he's not longing them for them to turn away from sin. What he's longing for is for them to be actively turned back. And in this case, turned back from what or from whom? He wants them to be turned back from God himself. In other words, David is saying, if you are the sort of person who's an image bearer of God, who longs for and delights in the pain of other image bearers of God, God should not and will not accept you as righteous. You said, Philip, it's sounding an awful lot like work salvation. Listen, works don't save you, but your salvation makes you work a certain way. And if you truly are a covenant person of the Lord, there is a way that you will be. There's a way that the Spirit will guide you and lead you. And it won't be to the delight of the harm of other people. That's not what it will be. There won't be some sort of joy in the pain of someone else. And God will not tolerate this among his people. What is it that the New Testament declares about this very issue? You cannot say in your heart that you love God whom you have not seen and hate your brother in your heart whom you have seen. That's hypocrisy. And it's not tolerable in the economy of God. It's not the sort of thing that God 
allows. And so what David here is doing is he's calling for God to be just in this situation. God, these people hate me for no reason. They delight in my pain. They desire for me to be made small. They receive joy and expressions of happiness when they find out that my life is full of sorrow and pain. God, let them be ashamed of that. Let them be humiliated by that. Let them be dishonored. Let them be turned away from you because this is not how you would have your people to be. And so David expresses a longing from his heart that God would be a God of justice in this case. And then notice the transition that he makes when he gets to verse four. Hope that is found only in the Lord. Look at verse four. Let all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. And let those who love your salvation say continually, let God be magnified. Let all who seek you rejoice. Now, why would David, in the middle of having a conversation about the pain and the suffering and the sorrow that he's feeling at the hands of other people and his desire for them to be ashamed and humiliated and for them to come to the realization that this is not acceptable to the Lord. Why would he make an aggressive shift to talking about those who seek the Lord will rejoice in him? Well, let's ask a question. When you come to realize that you are being oppressed by someone else. When someone else is actively causing you to suffer and have pain. In that moment, do you seek the Lord? Or do you seek ways to be vengeful? Yeah, I heard an ouch over here. Ouch. As an old friend of mine used to say, if you can't say amen, say ouch. Why would David make this transition? Because David has within himself the capacity. Listen to me this morning. Listen to me this morning. This, this is, let's get it very real this morning. David has within himself a proven track record. The capacity of killing his enemies if he wanted to. How many times in the middle of his back and forth with Saul could he have killed him? How many times has David gone out to battle and demonstrated his capacity for physical violence, the most ultimate form of vengeance that a person can actually take? David has demonstrated that he has the real, actual ability to make his enemy stop through violence if he wanted to. And yet, he does not. He doesn't do that. Instead, he seeks the face of God and rejoices in the joy of the Lord rather than the things he might could do to make things even with his enemies. Friends, that's a very different approach to life. It's a very different approach to life. 
So when you're being oppressed, when you're suffering at the hands of another, do you turn your face toward the Lord? Do you seek after God? And in doing so, when you seek after the Lord, do you rejoice in Him rather than the negative, difficult, suffering circumstances you find yourself in? What I have come to realize about my own life and the lives of people that I've been able to engage with these sorts of things is that normally when pain is being brought unjust on us from a wicked outside source instead of bypassing that pain and going straight to the source of joy and delight and happiness and hope which is the presence of God in our lives savingly we allow the circumstance of someone else's sin to blockade our blessing that we would find in the Lord thus making our oppressor into an idol because they have more of our attention and focus and work Worship and honor and and connection and whatever than the Lord himself does. It's a really weird idol, but that's what it is. It consumes our thoughts. It consumes our time. It consumes our emotions. It consumes a whole host of things about our lives. And in rather than our attention going to the greatness of the glory of God and Jesus Christ who has saved us, we blockade that worship of God with this angst that we feel that someone else is doing to us. And we can't get past the actions of the others to revel in the action of God. And friends, that's called idolatry. Even if it's negative, that's what that is. You have placed something in a superior location than the person and work of Jesus Christ in your life. And that's why David makes this transition here. Is because he knows if my focus is on my enemy, and if my focus is on my pain, and if my focus is on the sin that my enemy is committing against me, and if that becomes the consuming thing in my life, I have now given my enemy the place that only the Lord should have in my life. And in some twisted, weird way, I have made my enemy and my oppressor my God. Because they're the ones who controls the joy of my heart. That's why David puts this here. Because he's saying, don't seek retribution, don't seek revenge, don't seek vengeance, don't seek Retaliation, seek the Lord, find gladness in him, worship God because of his great salvation. Say to him, let God be magnified, not my oppressor, not my enemy, not the one who's making me suffer. I will not magnify them through the continual reality of my attention. I will step around them and I will magnify the name of the God who has saved me, even though my circumstances are circumstances of suffering right now at the hands of another. Because the greatness of God is greater than the oppression of my enemy. And that sounds all well and good. And then there's verse 5. And I love verse 5 because it just shows how honest David actually is. It's profound honesty. Notice what verse 5 says. But, all that's true. But, 
I am afflicted and needy. Hasten to me, O God. You are my help and my deliverer, O Lord. Do not delay. Remember, this is parallelism in Hebrew poetry. It's exactly what was said at the beginning about needing God to be his help and deliverer. He's repeating it again at the end. Yet the pain is still there. Friends, I think that there's a great deal of confusion in the life of evangelical Christians because we think, well, you know what? If I bypass and I go straight to God and I find joy in the Lord and I find rejoicing in him and I delight in his salvation and all these sorts of things, then suddenly in some weird mystical, magical fairy tale, you know, unicorn skipping through fields of daisies singing Kumbaya, all of my pain's just going to magically disappear. Like I, you know, I just... I, I took some, you know, I took one of those pills that they advertise on TV, you know. And suddenly I just feel really good about myself all the time. Friends, that's not the promise of the Word of God. Just because you adjust your attention to the joy of the Lord, just because you adjust your attention to the great salvation that God has given, just because you divert your attention away from your enemy and you give all glory to God, does not mean that you won't still actually be in pain. David still slept in a cave. He still wasn't on the throne like he should have been. He still had to go and flee and live among the Philistines. His circumstances were still terrible. People were still trying to kill him. It's not that he stopped being in pain. It's not that he stopped having sorrow. We have this either or mentality as Christians where it's like, well, either I'm really sad and upset or I'm really seeking the joy of the Lord. Like... The two can't coincide at the same time. Friends, let me go ahead and just like de-stress everybody in the room. You can be really angry and sad and upset and frustrated and still revel in the joy of the Lord that he saved you. Like both can happen at the same time. I give you a New Testament example from the life of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ himself. Really good friend of Jesus has died. His name was Lazarus. You know the story? And they came to him and said, Hey, your buddy Lazarus is sick. He said, hey, we got to wait. And he waited and his friend Lazarus died. And he shows up. They're having the funeral service and everybody's upset. Most awesome short verses in all of the Bible. And it said Jesus did what? Jesus wept. He wept. Guess what? You don't weep. You don't weep when you're just feeling so-so about something. It's much deeper emotion than that. He wept real, meaningful, sorrowful pain at the death of his friend and simultaneously knew the whole reason he waited to go and why he had showed up in town was to bring him back from the dead. And yet he still wept. You can be genuinely sorrowful and in pain and simultaneously trusting and reveling and glorying in the joy of the Lord. You really can do both at the same time. And this is what David is doing for us here at the end of this particular chapter. So we see that there's this note from the life of Jesus. Listen. I want you to consider 
in Jesus' life? A few things. First, quickly as we get ready to close. First, I want you to consider Peter. Peter was in Jesus' inner circle. Peter was one of his top three guys. Whatever you try to make the interpretation of the Matthew passages about upon this rock, I'll build my church. It's a big deal. Peter preaches the first post-ascension sermon that causes one of the greatest ingatherings in the brand new church that's ever happened. And yet, Jesus said it was going to happen. Peter, you're going to deny me. That's what you're going to, you're going to deny me. You say you're going to stand by me, but you're going to deny me. And we're coming up on Easter. This is the stories that we're kind of wrapping our brains around right now. We'll celebrate some of these at Monday, Thursday. We think through these on Good Friday. This is the reality of what happened with Jesus on his way to the cross. Peter said, I'll stand with you. I'll die for you. He said, no, you're going to bail on me. And Peter cursed his very existence to deny the name of Jesus. You want to talk about somebody who knows what it's like to experience pain at the hand of another, someone that they thought loved them and cared about them? Nobody's ever experienced pain like that the way Jesus did. Jesus never did anything wrong and did nothing but great things in the life of Peter. And at the first sign of real trouble, Peter bailed on him. That's what Peter did. Jesus knows exactly what you're going through if you've gone through something like this. Consider it with some of the other disciples. The only disciple that hung around at the cross was John. Everybody else bailed on Jesus. And then let's just talk about the cross for a second. Let's just talk about the cross for a second. It's about to be Easter next week. Let's talk about the cross for a second. Good Friday's coming up. What really happened on the cross? The sin that God's wrath would fall on of every human being that would be redeemed by Christ was placed on flawless Jesus The Father, in some mystical way that we can't comprehend, turned His face away from the Son for something the Son did not do, but was willing to receive for the salvation of someone else. You do not know pain the way Jesus knew pain. Not even close. And yet, what did he say was his mission in marching to Jerusalem to have that happen to him? For the joy of the Lord. Friends, the pain of your current circumstances does not diminish the goodness of God in your life. And I think that that's where most of us as modern day 21st century American evangelical Christians fall short. Is that somehow we look at the painful circumstances of our lives. And it causes us, even though we would never verbalize it, it happens in the way that we act. We somehow think less of God's goodness in our lives. 
We get this faulty notion, even if it's never spoken, even if it just remains in the subconscious mind. We get this faulty notion of, well, if God were really good, he wouldn't be having these things happening to me. If that's the thinking, then if God were really good, the cross would have never happened. None of us wants to own that, though, because we need the cross to happen. And so, friends, this morning, especially if you're experiencing pain at the hand of another, the pain of your current circumstances does not diminish the goodness of God in your life. Because all of the things that you start to think about when you experience pain unjustly at the hands of others is not true. You're not alone. It's probably not your fault. You probably didn't bring this on yourself. There probably isn't something that you could have done differently that would have made the circumstances better. God is not abandoning you. God's likely not punishing you for something. All of the things that normally come flooding into the mind of a person who's really been walking rightly with the Lord and walking rightly with others, who's now experiencing pain at the hands of others unnecessarily and unjustly, guess what? Probably none of that's your fault. You're bearing the brunt of sin of another human being. And you know what that means? It means God's still good. You might be hurting, but God's still good. God may be allowing these negative things to happen in your life, but He is still good. God has a purpose behind the pain, even if you don't understand or see what that purpose may be, because God is always good. And the negative nature of your circumstances does not and will not and cannot and should not in your life diminish the glorious goodness and worship of God's glorious goodness that comes from us toward Him. It just shouldn't happen. Because, friend, if it does, you're allowing your pain to take the place of an idol in your life. You're giving glory to your suffering rather than giving glory to the God who allows your suffering. Because God's still worthy of worship even when you're in pain. And that's what David just did for us. And I love it. Man, it is so good. That is what he just did for us. He said, listen, I want God to deliver me from this pain. This pain is not just. I want those who are causing me pain to fall under the justice of God. But I want those who seek the face of God to rejoice in Him, delight in Him, worship Him. But even when I do that, God, I still hurt. And friends, there's something beautiful to be said about worship of God through pain. It's easy to worship God when everything's going great. It's easy to raise your hands in praise and say glory be to God when everything's just fine. It's another kind of thing altogether to look around and know that your whole life is broken and falling apart. Because friend, I guarantee you, hiding in a cave from Saul and the Philistines and a whole host of everybody else, worrying if you're going to live through the night, David's life was falling apart. 
and yet in the middle of all of that, stepped over the negativity of all of those circumstances and through the pain and through the suffering and through the sorrow, still raised his hands up and said, glory be to God. There's something very different about that than when life is sunshine and flowers and roses. There's a different sort of connection and reality with the greatness of God when everything around your life basically screams, is your God even there? And you step out in faith and worship and say, not only is my God here, but he's always been here and he's the same yesterday, today and forever. He's a good God and I will praise him. And friends, that's, that is what Jesus has accomplished for us on the cross. It's what we're about to celebrate when we celebrate this table in just a moment. He who knew no sin became sin for us. So that we who should be despised and rejected by God can be welcomed in and called his children. Praise God. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you. Thank you that the pain of our current circumstances does not diminish your goodness in our lives. Father, help us today not to make an idol of our suffering. But instead, through the suffering, still see by faith your greatness, your goodness, and your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite the men who are going to help with the table, if you would please come at this time.